with all the recent supply chain disruptions, why aren't we seeing a more aggressive move by manufacturers to diversify sourcing? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. COVID-19 is just the latest in a long string of disasters and glitches that have hit global manufacturers hard, especially those who rely on a single country or partner for making their products. So you'd think they would have moved to diversify sourcing in order to protect themselves against future disruptions of supply. But that doesn't always seem to be the case, according to the latest Southeast Asia sectoral cost index from Flexport. In fact, it reveals a decreased tolerance for multi-sourcing when there are wide differences in price. Companies aren't ignoring the risk of factors such as tariffs and higher logistics costs arising from production in China, but neither are they fleeing that country in large numbers. On the show today, we get an explanation of the index's findings and delve into the complexity of sourcing decisions from Phil Levy, chief economist with Flexport. He lays out the considerations behind the decision to shift at least a portion of manufacturing to up-and-coming countries in Southeast Asia, and explains why tariffs placed on imports from China haven't caused that country to raise its prices on manufactured goods. Here's my conversation with Phil Levy. Phil Levy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Phil, are manufacturers today, are they giving serious consideration to shifting sourcing from China to Southeast Asia? I think they've been looking at that for a while. They're certainly looking at it today, but they've had to deal with obstacles ever since the start of the trade war in the Section 301 action against China, and things have only gotten more challenging with COVID. So when we talk about Southeast Asia, I know there's the typical countries, but which ones do you have in mind? The foremost country looks to be a Vietnam from everything we've studied. It's got the jump on the others. It's not the only country out there. People are exploring a whole range, but Vietnam is, is in the lead. And then what? Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, also possibilities? Yeah, Philippines, some people are looking at as well. So mm-hmm. th- that's the range. People are looking around Southeast Asia. But Vietnam has really drawn a lot of attention. So what are the formulas for making an ultimate decision? What are the big cost considerations that are top of mind as they think this through? That's a great question. Because I think there really are several categories of what one has to look at. There's just straight production cost. How much does it take to manufacture whatever product you're trying to manufacture in each of these places? But then there get to be questions about compliance. What is it to work in a place like this? And logistics. How easy is it to move goods in and out of a place? And that's not the same across all of these countries. There's a range of considerations one has to think about. Cost mm-hmm. is, is way up there, but the others are important as well. If we just talk about basic labor costs, it has been the case that in the last few years, factory wages in China have been on the rise. Enough so that it causes a gap between labor rates in China and Southeast Asia or not? Yes, there is a gap there, but this is also a trap in terms of how to think about this, because it's not a straight comparison of what are wages in China versus wages in Vietnam, for example. What a manufacturer really wants to look at is productivity-adjusted wages, which is not as easy to see 
at, at first glance. But that's the trick. If you're paying somebody twice as much but they're three times as productive, that's a bargain. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that China has done, they've developed a lot of productivity and they've also made supply chains work really well. So it's that balance that, that uh, producers need to look at. It has often been said that other countries cannot possibly match China's scale. Maybe Taiwan, but beyond that, a factory uh, like uh, Foxconn, where you can employ tens of thousands of workers. It's hard to see where countries in Southeast Asia could do that, and that would be a consideration too. Or am I wrong about that? It depends what kind of scale you need. I mean, you certainly have very populous countries in Southeast Asia. So some of the other countries, Vietnam, for example, has a population of something like 96 million, which does not compare to China, which is, I think, in the ballpark of 1.3 billion. But if you get a range of sort of productive workers, that could be all one needs. So I think there's size for N undertaking. That's one question. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's also a question which a lot of manufacturers have to deal with, which is, is it breadth? Does it matter if you are, for example, making apparel and you've got the zipper factory right down the street and there's somebody else who does sewing right next to them? So that's clearly an area in which China has had an advantage. I don't think it's so much because of the enormous size of the country as the fact that they've been going at this for 20 some years and they've really developed quite a bit. So in order to make a successful shift in production, not only do you have to take the basic finished goods factory out, but you have to have it in proximity to multiple tiers up the supply chain as well, correct? And is that is that I, possible for Southeast Asia to, to do? Well, you either have to do that or you have to figure that you're going to be moving goods back and forth. And it's worth keeping in mind, China was not always the supply chain behemoth that it is now. In fact, if you go back, 25 years, it was just breaking in. And the way it often broke in was not that it would do an entire supply chain operation from start to finish, but it would often take the final part of that. Some of the early estimates were that it was doing 10% of the value added. So in a way, you can think of some of this now as reversing that process where you might still have a substantial amount of your operations in China, but some of the work gets done in Malaysia or in Vietnam seen in the case of, for instance, Apple, with a very complex supply chain where they source aspects of their computers and, and phones from multiple countries, including Southeast Asia, right? So that's already been happening. That's right. And we see that with, with lots of sophisticated products. You're absolutely yeah. right with the Apple example. You look at all kinds of things where it's, that, that's been the major trend is specialization, where it allows countries to have a, a niche, an important niche, but a niche. But that's also the way that you get some of these countries, which are clearly coming from behind. Once upon a time, this was China, but now this is say, Vietnam or a Thailand, where they don't have to have the whole thing. They can take a part. It does, however, mean that there's a logistics challenge there because it's that much more moving things around and making sure the right stuff is in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I want to talk more about the logistics challenge, especially with regard to seaports. China, of course, has major seaports that can support the production flow out of that country. I wonder if it's a bit of a chicken and egg proposition, however, if you go to Southeast Asia, where companies will source in Southeast Asia because the port infrastructure is there, or first they source and the port infrastructure comes up in response to it, or does it all have to happen at once? My sense of the pattern is that you have some degree of port infrastructure, you get a surge, there are strains, and people try to alleviate the strains. Although I should note 
that you're getting strains for all kinds of reasons now. We're seeing even gigantic ports like Yantian shutting down with the pandemic. We're seeing in the U.S. where people are bringing stuff in, that sometimes there can be an advantage to going to a smaller port, which takes smaller ships, because that particular route may be less congested. So this, this is a time when the answers are no longer straight and obvious. Now, Flexport's Southeast Asia Sectoral Cost Index indicates, yeah. this is, I find this rather interesting, it says costs in China have remained surprisingly flat in compared to Southeast Asia. Now, why would that be? Is that the infrastructure thing as well? Or, or what, what is the factor there? Sure. Well, let me just say a bit about what we're doing with these. And also note that it varies a bit depending on the sector. We're looking at three different sectors. So we're looking at furniture, apparel, and electronics. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're looking at China, you're seeing a very well-established sector where things haven't moved that much. And in fact, this finding kind of confirms some additional economic research that was done independently by others, which was in the context of who actually ended up paying these tariffs that President Trump ended up imposing on China. And the economic findings tend to say Americans paid it. Well, that conclusion is equivalent to saying the Chinese didn't drop their prices, because if they had dropped their prices, that would effectively have been them paying the tariffs. So instead, mm. the tariffs got stuck on top and Americans ended up paying them. So yeah. in this case, I think that's part of what you have. You have sort of very well-established prices. So in a way, China kind of serves as a baseline. And then what we're showing is what's happening in some of these neighboring countries and how are their prices swinging around in ways that I think are otherwise hard to observe, but we're able to see some of this in our data. If we go into those three sectors one at a time, taking electronics first, it sounds like that is something in which China was particularly adept at doing. And I wonder if a country like Vietnam, for instance, can handle the complexities and the scale required to play successfully in the electronics production sector. Yeah, it's a good question. And your question is entirely in line with what we see in our findings, which is that you've seen some China's prices stayed relatively flat. And we've seen the price of electronics coming out of Vietnam swinging around, initially going up, then going down, then rising again. And our interpretation of this is it's not easy to handle all of this. You've got some scarce resources, abilities to, to handle. And as everyone comes flooding in, costs rise and then they subside, which is a major reason why is we want to track this index. This is something we're going to be putting out quarterly. But just to keep people apprised of what is happening in these key sectors. Now, when it comes to apparel, this is interesting because you said costs in China have remained stable, while those in Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam have deviated across the board. Why that? Why the difference there? Yeah, I wish I could give you a detailed story for each country. I can't because what we're doing is, is taking actual cost data, and that's really the start of an investigation. So it's suggestive. I think as you get people looking for alternatives, if you look at the data, we start to see a lot of the big moves late 2018, early 2019. In those sectors where prices have gone up, I think that a ready explanation is you had people looking for either an alternative to China or simply a China plus one sourcing model. And mm. China is so big that if you just take a fraction of, of that work that's happening there and you take it off to Indonesia, for example, or Thailand, it can mean that you're, you're bidding up costs. And we may see some of that. 
it was not uniform. You had some countries where, where things went down. All I can do is, is speculate on that, that yeah. it can just sort of be shifts in relative costs. But, that doesn't, but that's not much of an answer. But hasn't Southeast Asia long played a big role in apparel manufacturing? You know, look at the labels on a lot of stuff sold in this country, and you will see Southeast Asian countries already. Oh, sure. No, and I don't mean to suggest that, that we sort of just discovered this region, but there's a difference just in terms of the, the scale. It's what, what you and I were discussing earlier, that China is so big that if you take little slices off, you could be talking about, you know, a very significant percentage increase in what's happening in these other places. It's not that we're starting in those other places, but, but it could be ramping up significantly, and that could drive costs. And in the third sector, which you've already alluded to, furniture, uh, you indicate that that is subject to longer-term contracts, less subject to price fluctuations. Costs have increased marginally in Indonesia and Vietnam while remaining almost flat in China. Again, what's going on there? Is it the same about what you've already told me, or is there a unique dynamic there? What the data is telling us on that is they all kind of look like China. We, we exaggerate a little bit with the graph we put in our report because the, the scale gets sort of blown up so you can see some variation. But mm -hmm. for practical purposes, they all look reasonably flat, and there's no point in telling much of a different story. So this may be that you've got a limited amount of this, and it's, it's under sort of set prices. That this, this isn't seeing the kind of variation that you see in apparel and electronics. But what it takes to put build furniture, I mean, certainly it's not a simple operation, but I would imagine it's a lot less complex than putting together high-tech and electronics products. So I would wonder if that was more better suited for Southeast Asia to take over more of that. That could well be, but that, that's getting beyond my expertise. Here's something I find really interesting in your conclusions, and that is that you say you're seeing decreased tolerance for multi-sourcing when there are significant price differences, that you could see a decreased willingness to have a diversified supply chain. Well, doesn't that go against everything that manufacturers have been giving lip service to ever since they encountered the risks of single sourcing because of tsunamis and floods and volcanoes and COVID and tariffs. I'm a little bit flummoxed by that. In, in fact, are they taking more of a cost consideration that this talk of diversification is just that, just talk? You and me both. I share your state of being flummoxed. Essentially what's happening here is we're seeing stuff in the data and it's an ongoing subject of investigation as we do our research in these matters. But let me tell you how we reach this conclusion and that interpretation, and I'm, and I'm open to others, okay. which is we wanted to look at the SKU level to see what were costs in China relative to a competitor, relative to, say, Vietnam. In this case, mm -hmm. it was exactly Vietnam. So when the same SKU is being produced in both places, what do you see as the ratio of costs? And if you were tolerant of price differences and really putting an emphasis on diversification, you'd expect to see something of a spread, right? That sometimes China would cost more, sometimes Vietnam would cost more, but you were willing to, to sort of produce in both places. We saw a bit of that if you looked in 2019. As you go on and look at 2020 data and 2021 data, that spread seems to narrow significantly, and it all kind of comes down right around one. So one says, the number 1.0, I will produce in both places if the cost is exactly the same in both places. Well, that's not a diversified approach. And that change over time seems to indicate reduced tolerance for those price differences. And to me, this was always the question when people talked about diversification of supply chains, which is, 
it sounds great, right? Who wouldn't want diversification? But the question is diversification at what price? Mm -hmm. How much am I willing to pay for that diversification? If you tell me that I can produce in two different places and I'll do nothing to my costs, I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to think that's fantastic. If you say I'm going to add a second place, but the second place costs 5% more than the first place, so effectively I'm paying a charge for this, how much am I willing to pay that charge? So yes, our initial interpretation of this is the rhetoric has a certain appeal, but when you put a price tag on it, there's less enthusiasm. But isn't it a question of just what is the definition of the word cost? Yeah, production costs of A versus B or something, sure. But what is the cost of a disruption that causes you to lose sourcing at your single source supplier, lose production, lose inventory, lose customers down the line? I mean, aren't companies taking a broader risk management approach to what they con what constitutes cost in the long term? I think that's absolutely the argument for diversification. And note, by the way, I'm not arguing against diversification. What I'm reporting here is sort of an empirical result of what we're seeing and the shifts that we're seeing over time in the data. You certainly can make that argument. It's, to me, this is the argument that one makes for insurance. Shouldn't you buy insurance against an unfortunate event? And the answer tends to be, how much do I have to pay for the insurance? And how likely do I think it is that I'm going to be facing that event? And you put those two together and you come up with your answer. Does that mean that everybody's reaching the right answer? That I can't say. But so far in the data, we are not seeing a move for sort of more diversification, which we have defined as you're willing to produce the same skew in both places, even if there's a price difference. We've seen a decreased, a decreased willingness to do that. And what about tariffs? They don't seem to be going away soon. The Biden administration has not reversed the Trump administration's tariffs, at least at this point. So is that over the longer term an attractive proposition for Southeast Asia to continue to avoid those, thinking that, no, the China tariffs won't go away soon, so we better be thinking long term in shifting production down there? I think the tariffs have been a major, major motivation for people to look around. There's been a question up until very recently with the Biden administration, you had a threat of tariffs against Vietnam also hanging out there. So that was one of the questions. Poor manufacturers have had to deal with an awful lot of uncertainty. But this is part of it, is you may think, okay, I relocate from China to Vietnam, and look, I've gotten free of the Section 301 tariffs on China. True. But for a long time there, it was, well, what about Vietnam and currency? We actually just got some clarification within the last month or two from the Biden administration that they were not going to be going after Vietnam on currency that way. But yes, I think that has been a motivation the challenge with this has been, as manufacturers know all too well, it's costly to rework one supply chain. And you want to know, am I doing this because I'm avoiding, say, five years of tariffs or two years of tariffs or six mm -hmm. months of tariffs? And that's been a really difficult call to make right from the very start of this trade war, because many of the assurances at the time were that this was going to be quick. The unstated assumption behind our entire conversation today is that these are the choices, China or Southeast Asia, that there isn't really a serious consideration being given to large-scale reshoring back to the U.S. or even to North America. What about going west, though, from Southeast Asia? What about India, the subcontinent? Do you look into that at all, or will you be looking into that at all? I think we are planning to look into that. Flexport is expanding rapidly, and as we get better coverage in, in more areas, we'll have more data to work with. I will say that there is a reason to sort of treat Southeast Asia as the primary contender, which is when you see separate surveys, for example, 
think the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in China has looked at some of these things. You will often see producers saying, if I were to leave China, where do I go? And Southeast Asia comes at the forefront. But they do also ask about, do you go to South Asia? Do you go to Latin America? Do you come back to the United States? Those are the answers for some people. But but Southeast Asia has certainly been at the forefront. Phil Levy of Flexport, thank you so much for an enlightening conversation and sharing with us the conclusions of the latest Southeast Asia sectoral cost index from Flexport. I really appreciate your, your time and insights. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed our talk. Thank you. That was my conversation with Phil Levy of Flexport, talking about alternatives to sourcing in China. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain, and also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well, and see you next time.